And just like that, we are live. Happy Tuesday, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of Venturing in VC. I'm your host, Landon Campbell. And as you know, this is a live show where we speak with the top venture capitalists about their routines, journeys, and lessons. You can sign up for exciting guests every single Tuesday. We record them at noon Pacific time, and you can always sign up at inside.com slash VIVC. This episode is going to go live on Thursday on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, Uh, and we have a very special guest. If you enjoy his advice and want to share it with your friends, family, and peers, please make sure to share this episode. And today, as I mentioned, you know, for episode seven, we have a very special guest, and uh, we should do it special for episode seven because seven is my lucky number. Today, we're speaking with Roy. Bahat. He's the head of Bloomberg Beta, which is an early stage venture firm backed by Bloomberg LP that invests in startups creating the future of work. It was the first venture fund to focus on investing in the future of work and also artificial intelligence. Roy has a very interesting professional journey and background. We're excited to dive right in and invite him onto the stage. But before we do, I want to say thank you so much to our amazing sponsor for all of season one of Venturing in BC, Seed Invest. SeedInvest is the equity crowdfunding platform that helps entrepreneurs raise the capital they need from the seed stage to Series D by harnessing the awesome power of the crowd. You can learn more about how to get your business in front of their amazing network of over 600,000 investors at inside.seedinvest.com. One more time, that's inside.seedinvest.com. We have a very cool and custom website with Seed Invest. All right, without further ado, let's welcome Roy to the stage. Roy, happy Tuesday. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're really excited for uh, this episode, if you couldn't tell. Um, And I'm just really fortunate and excited that you're here today. Well, I'm, I'm, I love the inside community. You know, it gave us through the reverse pitch competition, yep. uh, you know, a few months ago, just such a great chance to think on how we want to tell our story to founders. So I'm, I'm grateful. 100%. Yeah. For those that don't know, uh, Roy represented the Bloomberg beta team at our Meet Our Fund event uh, last year. It's a reverse pitch um, day pretty much where instead of founders pitching investors, investors come and pitch their funds. And Roy was one of our most exciting and popular uh, speakers. So we had to invite him back for venturing in VC. Uh, so Roy, with this show, I love to start at the beginning. Of course, we'll get into your career in venture, uh, but I want to talk about some of your careers before uh, your time in venture. So let's talk about your time at McKinsey as a management consultant. I'm curious of one routine that you developed during your time at McKinsey that you still use today. I can align and distribute shapes on a PowerPoint slide like you <laughs> would not believe. They're always no. Um I think that the the there most so first of all, I made a lot of great relationships. It was a mm-hmm. weird time for the firm. I mean, in my first training, they the like the featured speaker on video was Jeff Skilling from Enron at about the power of intangible assets. And we're all sitting there like very wise. And I was like, something doesn't make sense to me here. But then the guy goes to jail for, for you know, so yeah. was that. <laughs> um, most of the profession, I learned a lot of professional habits there. I would mm-hmm. say that the single most important one is what I call high quality finished work. That when you do something and you need it to be right, that you're proud of it being completely correct. And, um, and what goes along with that is, uh, 
is an ability to get to the answer quickly. So starting at the end, not like a usual story where you wait and build up a lot of tension. And you know the, the famous pyramid principle is a McKinsey thing about how if somebody's only listening to you for 15 seconds, they should be able to get that point. If they're listening to you for two minutes, they should be getting a fuller version of the same point. And if you got them for an hour, you know, even more. And so you sort of stack up the pyramid like that. And that's really served me very well since then. And by the way, yeah, no. I'm a client services business now. Client customers are our founders. The founders who we back are our customers. And I kind of think of it in much the same way. I thought I didn't like client service when I was mm -hmm. uh, at McKinsey. It turns out I just didn't really like my clients that much. <laughs> that is really important. And, uh, you know, I want to break down a few things that you said there. Um, first off, I want to mention that a lot of uh, professionals I've spoken with, you know, had careers start at McKinsey. And it's really interesting to see that the work that they're doing now, um, taking those early skills and principles from McKinsey. Um, I love your point about just getting to the point. Um, you know, there's so much information out in the world, a lot of distractions. If you're presenting something, if you're trying to you know, win a deal to even, you know, convince someone to do something, you want to get straight to the point. And I loved your 15 second approach. I mean, if you can really find a way to make something as clear as possible from the get go, rope people in, um, that's a really, really effective way. Well, the, the only uh, thing I'd say about it, though, is that not all people like the same approach. And so we try to be really upfront about what we are, but we're not for everybody. And by the way, nobody's for everybody. And so if you try to, you know, yeah. I, 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 I don't know of very many communication styles that always work. And if you try to do something that always works, then you're going to bore the crap out of people. And, you know, who wants to go through life working with like polite, boring people? Not me. Uh, me either. Yeah. You, you got to curate your approach, I guess, when you have these conversations with yeah. people. So that's really good advice. Um, Roy, a fun fact about you that I found out. Uh, you're one of the few VCs that have worked in government. Um, you had careers in politics, you know, senior policy director for the office of the mayor um, in New York, director of international strategy as well. Uh, let's talk about these experiences a little bit. And uh, if you can find uh, some transferable skills from politics to venture capital, I'd love to explore some of those. Tons of them. I mean, first, for years, I was, so far as I could find, the senior most venture capitalist who had worked in government. Um, this was before, you know, some more experienced Katie Hahn, you know, was not yet a venture capitalist at that point. And my experience in government was a long time ago. So let's not make too much of it either. Um, so I'll just start with a myth first. A lot of people in tech believe that people who work in government are, you know, kind of slow nine to fivers, my experience was totally the opposite. My experience was that the pace of responsiveness in government, especially in an administration like the Bloomberg administration and near the top of the administration, was so fast, so much faster than any startup I've worked with, within any big corporate I've worked with. And so one of the things I learned is speed. The other thing I learned is a government is on one level, not totally, but on one level, just a very large corporation. And so it has business of different kinds. And I learned how to drop myself into different business situations and just figure out which way the currents were going. Who in this meeting really wants what? What are they trying to achieve? And that became really valuable as a skill for just navigating startups with different business models and that kind of thing. And the last thing is in government, it's very hard to be proactive with your time because you are accountable to the citizenry. And so if some unexpected mm -hmm. crisis comes up, hey, there goes your week, you know? And so you develop, the, the people who are talented, and I tried to learn from them, develop all these habits around protecting their time, protecting their 
ability to make proactive progress. And that also is a very transferable startup experience. Is like you can get distracted by a billion things, but you know, you want to make progress, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be driven by your own inner compass. Of course. Quick follow-up for that, Roy, you know, because we've heard the slogan move fast, break things. And you have to really have speed on your side and move fast and you know, work through multiple projects. I mean, what advice do you have to people juggling multiple things uh, that really uh, need to have speed on their side? I think that. So first of all, we've heard move fast, break things, but the company that uh, popularized it, you know, then qualified it to the point where they kind of took it away, you know, move fast and break things, but with stable infrastructure, it's like everybody, you know, it's, it, it's one of these things that works well in different settings. And what I would mm -hmm. say is that, and a company that really opened my eyes on this is Netflix through their culture presentation is knowing how costly it is to break something is a really mm -hmm. important thing to know. And my partner, James, uh, calls it error correction. He's been focused on this issue of how we correct mistakes. If a mistake is really costless to repair, then yeah, move as fast as you want, break everything in sight if it all just you know immediately uh, reappears. Whereas you know one of the reasons why the Theranos case was so um, shocking for so many of us is we have people's lives at stake, then don't move fast and break things. Like be <laughs> yeah, careful, that's, that's somebody's life on the line. And so I yes. think one of the paradoxes of startup life is it's really easy to try to reduce things to to fortune cookies, you know, mm -hmm. oh, do it, always do it this way. And it's not like that. You have to be fast and savvy at the same time if you're going to be successful. And that's one of the reasons starting things is so hard. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to something you mentioned earlier when talking about McKinsey. Uh, when it comes to solving a problem, sometimes you have to start at the end. Um, so I really see heavy connection there where, uh, you know, you don't want well, to just go in something well, at first. You want to yeah. always, you know, kind of reverse engineer it. Uh, so, you know, before we get to your career in VC, we're going through some of these uh, past career uh, paths of yours. We spoke really about kind of, about this. Yeah. of course, because it's all going to make sense when we talk about the future of work and talk about, you know, the support that you give founders um, that you work with today. Uh, so, yeah, we talked, we spoke about McKinsey. We spoke about politics. For the last of this segment, I want to talk about your time in media. Uh, you worked at the News Corporation under Rupert Murdoch, business development team there, and then also became president of IGN Entertainment, leading video game and entertainment properties. Um, let's talk about these experiences and kind of what you learned uh, working within the media sphere. I mean, so many things. It's a broad oh, question. But <laughs> no, it's a, great, it's a great question. So I think that I learned how things are not what you expect. At first, I was very dismissive of even the idea of approaching News Corporation about a job. And I just thought, Rupert Murdoch, like I've read about that guy and Fox News. And then I discovered the people around him are very different than what you would mm -hmm. expect. And he's very different from what you would expect. He was, you know, I'm not going to justify any of the effect of the world on, on the world of Fox News because I think sure. it has not been positive. But I never had a working relationship with a business person who you could more rely on um, to do the things he said. And I've worked for some people who have been just like that as well. I mean, Mike Bloomberg is like that too. It's sort of like shake their hand. You might as well have a contract. Um, that was a really powerful lesson. And in Rupert's case, curiosity 
who was a big part of what defines his personality. He was always asking questions about how things were, always trying to understand things he didn't know about, asking about a whole wide range of things from a whole wide range of people. And so I just found that to be such a compelling um, characteristic. And, you know, I'd also say that he was um, and is uh, that curiosity informs a view of how the world works. And he gives his people room to move within that. I mean, I really had a ton of independence. And my first two projects at News Corp were number one was trying to figure out how to kick child predators off of MySpace. Uh, and you know what, what you would expect. And number two was making the company carbon neutral. We made the company carbon neutral. And that is not a thing that you would have expected News Corporation to be <laughs> one of the first, if not the first major corporations in the US. Certainly, we were the biggest corporation to have done it at that point um, to do. And so things are not what you expect. And I guess I'd just call it traditional values go a really long way. Of course. No, that's really, really um, good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and now speaking about IGN Entertainment, uh, where you did serve as president, uh, general advice do you have for leading a team and what you learned as a, um, you know, leading that organization? So many things. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I decided after working in government and media and all these places to make my home in startups is because I just became so aware in doing that work of how powerful startups were. And um, I would say that I learned so much from the IGN team thing. One thing I learned by contrast is the power of focus because we had so many different properties that were acquired and put together and ultimately spun apart. It's like, wow, it's really hard to succeed when you have a portfolio of different approaches that don't all necessarily fit together. It sort of feels a little bit like a straitjacket. Um, the other thing that I learned is the power of repetition. You know, as a leader, it's not like being an academic or an investor where the things that are on your mind that are most current and interesting are the most important things to talk about. For a, the, the bigger an organization gets, the more important it is to have consistency in what you're pushing for. And you assume that just because you made that one strategy presentation in the all hands meeting six months ago, that people understand what the, um, what the goal is of the organization, but no, you mm -hmm. have to keep bringing that up and using examples that come up to reinforce it. And it's, there's something, I say this to founders all the time, that at some point leadership can become boring for founders because you are, you kind of get sick of hearing yourself say the same thing. Sure. And that's something that I definitely saw. And then I guess the last thing that I'd say, and this is what really led me in to Bloomberg Beta, is I saw how broken the future of work was. I mean, I saw how broken the present of work was. We'd try to hire software engineers, and eventually we had to start hiring software engineers without looking at their resumes because we needed access to new pools of talent. You know, I just saw how silly some of the default hiring processes used in corporate America were and how much bureaucracy there was and how much resistance to new tools. And this was a fairly modern internet company that already had some resistance to things. Um, and anyway, it was an incredible learning experience. I'm still tight with the crew there. I still feel loyal to them. Um, that's and good. the crew that was there then is now split up. And I guess that's the last thing I just I'd say is the joy of having a team that coheres I had that in City Hall. I had it at McKinsey. I ha I've had it actually, I think, in basically every role I've been in. I just love that. Like that to me is one of the great joys of work is that feeling of like being in it with people who are all trying to do something together.
Mm -hmm. Three really great pillars uh, when talking about leadership, uh, the power of focus, the power of repetition slash consistency, and also just finding that synergy within a team. I mean, we've all been yeah. a part of teams where it, it just clicks and you know, and there it right were away. moments where it didn't click, you know, but then like over the weekend, I got an email. I hope you don't mind me naming him Please. from a guy who used to work for me. His name is Sabri Tozen, and he's now an executive, a technology executive at LinkedIn. And he's had a great career since leaving IGN, Netflix, Facebook, LinkedIn. And those moments, like those moments of like, hey, our relationship survives and our mutual respect continues and our mm -hmm. collaboration continues, like that is, that's, that's the juice to me of the day-to-day -day of working with people. Yeah. And key point on uh, collaboration after even uh, departing from these companies. So it's great that you still have these connections with individuals. By the way, I think of that, and I'll just say this is true of VC and startups, is the relationship mm -hmm. always survives or not always, but often survives for better and for worse, the initial interaction. So if I'm talking to somebody like a frequent thing, founders are our customers, we serve them. A frequent thing they ask us to do is help to close a candidate who they're trying to hire. And mm -hmm. I'll talk to those candidates and I don't really think of myself as trying to sell them on joining the company because they know themselves better than I do. You know, I can give them information that they don't have. So I invite them to like ask me a lot of questions. And the thing I always say to them is the relationship survives that initial um, interaction. And Years later, I'll sometimes hear from some of these people or I'll ping them because like, hey, somebody I talked to about a job ended up going somewhere else and then they need a reference about a company. And those long lasting relationships are really powerful. And I, I also just say, I think it's a thing in tech that many people get wrong is I think many people are so focused on the value of that thing, that yes. one company that might be the big winner. Um, and that might be financially a rational thing to do. But life is long. That's something I also learned working from people who are honestly much older than I was. It's like, you know, you end up with 20 and 30 year relationships. You can't make new old friends. Can't make new old friends. I love that quote. It's all about quality over quantity. I think my generation especially is really starting to realize that too. We don't want these one-off relationships anymore. We want relationships that we can cultivate. And, and over I, time. I think, I think, look, I don't know exactly what generation you are, but I assume, you know, Gen Z. Yeah, fine. <laughs> So, but I think it is, these things also go in pendulums. Like, you know, the the quality over quantity also meant a lot of people got shut out from the system and that wasn't okay either. And so the way I see kind of society is we're in this ever adjusting, swinging back and forth. And our job as individuals is to see what's wrong in the present moment, correct for it and see if we can make it better. Really, really inspiring, Roy. Um, I think this is a perfect transition for us to now talk about Bloomberg Beta. Before we do, though, if anyone watching you know, within our audience has a question for Roy, you can ask them in the chat, and we will get there uh, later this um, during this conversation for our Q&A section uh, from the audience. And it seems Roy is an open book, so <laughs> sky's the limit with those questions. I try. Of course, of course. Um, so, Roy, let's start at the beginning for Bloomberg Beta. Um, again, you guys are the first firm to focus on the future of work. Um, I love talking about all your past experiences because this is something that you've been thinking about for a while, um, you know, the future of work even before Bloomberg Beta. Uh, but how did you get um, and find out about this opportunity to join the team and help create uh, this powerhouse at Bloomberg? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, the then CEO of Bloomberg, because Mike was still mayor at the time, so he was mm -hmm. uninvolved, reached out to me and said, hey, we worked together before. We've got a company that is innovative and successful, but very inwardly focused. And we're in this process of trying to become 
more aware of the best trends out there from using open source software, which was a big long-term effort at Bloomberg to hiring people with outside experiences. It was a company that really had many and still does, and this is terrific, homegrown talents who really evolved over time. And they said, we want to do a venture fund as part of that. And I said, no, you don't. You should, you should not do it. It's a <laughs> terrible idea. And I was like, VC, and my experience at the time was an experience as a uh, CEO or pre whatever, running a business, and as a founder, um, and as a sometimes angel investor and board member. And I got to tell you, I was not impressed with the state of VC. I was like, really? This is like the most famous venture capitalists in the world? Like, this is the advice they give? Like, this just seems lame to me. And it was very similar in some ways to what I saw in Hollywood, which when I worked okay. in media, which is in Hollywood, you have a small number of producers who are responsible for an outsized share of the hits. And it's an outlier business in some ways, just like VC. It's a hit business, just like startups. And you'd talk to some of the ones who had reputations for being really good. And you'd just be like, what are you talking about? Like, and then you'd realize they were insecure. They were only in their job because they'd lucked out once and locked in the benefits of that. Cause once you had a hit, people keep coming back to you because they don't know if you've got magic or luck. And, um, and I was really influenced by Nicholas Nassim Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomness, in how I think about this stuff. And so I told them I didn't think VC was a particularly good asset class to be in. I thought corporate VC was even worse because they're the second class citizens in the VC world because they're not even trying to build huge companies. They're trying to like do a partnership for the big mothership, you know, kind of thing. Like all these, I call them the purple glasses set of like the people who run around corporations trying to like look innovative and wear fancy socks. Um, and to Bloomberg's credit, what the company said to me is, okay, that's great. You think what we suggested won't work. Can you help us design something that would work for someone like you? And at the time, my plan was I was going to start another company. I was going to start a vocational education company. I'd already started a company um, that I was a co-founder of that was a venture-backed business. And I was like, okay, I'll think about that. And I basically thought, what are all the things that are broken with venture and how could you do the opposite? And at the time, Google Ventures was showing how a returns-focused VC firm could, even with a corporate LP, become a first-class firm. So I definitely took that lesson to heart. Uh, if you're small enough relative to the size of the mothership, then you can invest for returns. And I basically said, like, everything else VCs do that doesn't make sense, let's do the opposite. They're really secretive. Let's be as transparent as possible. Let's be the most transparent firm. You know, they say founders are their customers or they don't. Some of them say LPs are their customers, which is valid, by the way. I'm not, there's not a better and a worse on this. There's just different strategies. You know, uh, we've co-invested with Sequoia many times. And I think genuinely, this is my statement, not theirs. I think Sequoia sees the LP as their customer, which is a totally valid view. It's just a different view. Um, and, and obviously they've been enormously successful. Uh, you, but if you see the founder as your customer, be real about it. I mean, I remember as a founder, I'd pitch these venture firms and they'd say, founders are customer on the website. And then you'd email the head of the firm. He's like, yeah, buddy, I can't meet for three weeks. I'm in Bali. And it's like, uh, I don't feel like your customer. I feel like a supplicant. And so we try to be as authentic as possible. And whenever we all catch ourselves doing things that are inauthentic, we try to root that out, be religious about the founder being our customer be as transparent as possible. And then otherwise we just try to invest like a regular VC. 
I love that. Founders are our customers. And what you guys give to founders, because we're going to break down and speak about some of the um, companies within your portfolio. But, you know, what you guys are giving to founders are you're very authentic, very responsive, very transparent. I mean, uh, to people watching, if you check out the Bloomberg Beta website, um, I'll link it right there. It goes oh, to a GitHub you. page. It literally goes to um, kind of, you know, what's going on within the company. They share everything. They're very transparent. Um, and I think you're one of the only firms to have a website like that. Um, so let, let's let's kind of speak a little more about this. You know, what other offerings can uh, founders expect uh, from Bloomberg Beta? So first of all, I want to just start by saying we're not for everybody. We are not a firm. Some people think they want transparency, but they don't. They really want a cheerleader. And if you want just money, like somebody to, I have a friend who's a very successful VC and he says, my value add is I don't call you. And it's like, that's a good value add compared to many, many VCs who are a tax on your time. But that's not us. We are there to help raise the odds of extraordinary founders doing something that's extraordinary. And the way we do that varies depending on what each company needs, because the idea of putting somebody through a cookie cutter process just doesn't make sense. So it starts with figuring out with them how they want to communicate with us and then figuring out. We ask them during the investment process, other than money, what are some of the things you think you need? And then you might say a lot of times people talk about go to market because we love or what I would describe as go-to-market, because we love investing in product and technology-oriented founders who maybe have never spoken to a reporter before. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, we can help them figure out, like, here's a good way to do that. Here's when you might do that. Here's how to go about it. But whether it's fundraising, where we're really proud about the quality of our co-investors, um, whether it's business development and sales, press, you know, recruiting, like marketing for recruiting, that kind of thing. That tends to be the area. But I mean, you know, I call this the department of odd requests. I mean, I can't tell you how many times somebody's <laughs> given me like, uh, okay, we just got a letter. Our competitor plans to sue us. I've never gotten a cease and desist letter before. What do I do? Um, and that we love those kind of, you know, impossible to classify requests. I call it the bat signal request where the founder puts mm -hmm. the bat signal in the sky. And our job is show up. You know, we can show up and help solve the problem, whatever is needed. Um, it, it's all about really, and one of the best quotes that you just mentioned there, just knowing what you need, you know, as a founder, um, because you're going to be for a lot of founders, but you're not going to be for every founder. Um, and I think that I kind of have a pivot uh, question here as well. When it comes Sorry, to- Let me just say founders, one more thing about that before oh, sure, you please. ask your question, which is- please. Like any vendor, and we see ourselves as a vendor of capital, our job is to listen to our customers, but mm -hmm. not to do what they say. Our job is to give them what we believe they want in the way that we believe is best to give it. And so a lot sure. of that is driven by customer request, which is to say, help me close this candidate. I mean, I'm on WhatsApp threads with tons of founders who are like, hey, I need X. Like, can you read this thing? What do you think about, you know, can you do a backdoor reference? Fine. Some of it is the stuff that we believe founders may not know that they need that we can offer to them. And a very big thing there is perspective from a broader set of relationships. So we make it our business to spend time with the people who care about technology and innovation who are in government, you know, uh, who are, you know, from members of Congress to former secretaries of the treasury, whatever, to cultural leaders, corporate leaders outside of tech, you know, because we are affiliated with Bloomberg, a bunch of different leaders mm -hmm. in different parts of American life 
get to us as a way of learning about startups. And we see that as part of our responsibility because it doesn't make sense for like every startup founder to be like, oh, the CEO of some random corporate's coming to town. I guess I should meet with them. That's probably a waste. But for us to help funnel that and direct it and build those relationships, I kind of think of it as the the founders are hiring a VC like us as a shared service among them to build some of these connections and bridges for them. And so not all of it is responsive. Some of it is proactive based on what we believe helps founders who are extraordinary to raise the odds of building something extraordinary. Yeah, very, very interesting offerings um, that you guys have at Bloomberg Beta. I haven't seen a whole lot of those in the industry, so I love that you were able well, to I mean, share I, I will say, I think it's common at later stages. I think if you mm-hmm. get a big bulge bracket late stage firm, you know they're going to have some big way get their LP meeting and you might get to hobnob with them for a minute, dot, dot, dot. But for us, we believe it's important to do to some degree from the very beginning. Of course. So it's clear that you guys also do a lot of due diligence, you know, on your founders. We're going to get to that section soon. But before we do, I'm curious, and this was my original follow-up yeah. question that still applies. Uh, what due diligence do you recommend founders do to find a fund that really makes sense for them? Because I don't think you should ever just be going after Absolutely. thousands and thousands of funds. You need to be specific. Yeah. Uh, in so, fact, I've written on yeah. my blog a little bit about this, um, about how founders should check VC references. Uh, and my basic view is you do some lookup stuff. Like, you know, we try to make that easier for founders. In fact, if anybody out there wants to build a tool to make it even easier, I've got an idea for a tool that should be built. (laughs) And we're working on a thing that helps founders to assess VC quality based on founder references. Because right now that lives in like a lot of kind of review sites, which are good, but they're not all that comparative. Um, And they can go sour pretty quick because you end up, especially with anonymous review sites with like people who had one bad experience, you know, or one very good experience sharing a bunch of stuff. Um, But ultimately, I think the answer is founders have to reference check the same way they would a candidate. But you actually have to go deeper in that uh, reference checking because uh, because you can fire a candidate. You can't fire a VC. It's a marriage from which there is no divorce. It's a very good point. Yeah, that's, no, that's, so that, that, that's it. It's a, and it's part of the reason why we really firmly believe that founders should be active building relationship with other founders because that's the only way you find out. Yeah, it's a big decision, <laughs> big commitment. So you want to make sure that you are yeah. really focused on making the right one. Um, yeah, the very and you know, we that's part of the reason why we're so public about what we do is like, yeah, you want to reference us? There's the list. Go co- contact them, you know. Awesome. Perfect. We're going to link this to the uh, interview Roy had just sent over that link. Yeah, so thank awesome. you so much for that. Um, so I'll flip the question now as well. You know, what, what's your uh, investment process? You know, from the very beginning, we spoke about outliers earlier. Um, how do you, how does your team find those extraordinary founders? Um, and what is your advice to that young investor tuning in right now, uh, looking to really up their due diligence uh, process? Yeah. So I don't know what some other investor ought to do. I'll describe what we do and why. Um, because I believe in what I call a systemic hypothesis. And what I mean by that is you can't pick just one element of somebody's strategy. Like our strategy works, we think, because it's a philosophy of that mm-hmm. hangs together. So for us, the number one way that we want to get to know founders is by serving our existing founders well, because they are the ones who know best what kind of uh, companies and individuals are going to be a fit for us. And so those are the referrals that come to the front of the line, as far as I'm concerned. Then it's a matter of engaging helpfully with communities of people that we believe are both extremely high potential and underlooked by other investors. Mm -hmm. So 
Overlooked, rather. Say, uh, underlooked and overlooked might mean the same thing. Anyway, less less paid attention to by other investors. Yes. So for example, I think overlooked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> while we love and have backed successfully several graduates of Stanford Business School, there are like tons of VCs who like teach classes at Stanford Business School. And yeah, I teach a class at Berkeley, but like I'm not <laughs> the deepest VC in that community. And so we spend a little less time building proactive relationships there because there are plenty of other VCs who have it covered. Um, on the other hand, you know, we used to take VCs for tours around the country to uh, a bunch of cities with emerging startup ecosystems so we could learn about how to invest there. And part of the reason we did that is because you wouldn't find a lot of other great VCs, you know, trying to write the first check in, pick your city. Um, today, that's changed a little bit, especially as many VCs have become more national. But I think we, mm -hmm. along with Rise of the Rest and a few others, were ahead of that curve. And so we look for these communities where extraordinary people can be found in enough quantity that we can work with them. It doesn't always mean elite institutions, but it does sometimes mean prestigious institutions because people who have been successful tend to continue to be successful. Um, and then once, I mean, we could talk more about it, but that's sort of where it starts for us is that proactive outreach and trying to be helpful. And look, one of the reasons I engage on social media is I'm trying to offer value to the broader community up to the community to decide how valuable it is. But that's one of the reasons I'm here is to like try to be useful to people. I appreciate that. And that goes back to the Bloomberg beta philosophy on, uh, you know, the founders are your customers. Before you go out and look for new uh, founders, you know, to add to the portfolio, you got to do right with what you have, you know, at your current portfolio. Um, understand their needs, find solutions to those. Um, so it's right. all really connected to that inner. Um, yeah, really well put. Thank you. Yeah, of course, of course. You're summarizing so, me better than I do. So you I'm know, trying. I'm <laughs> steal some of that language. <laughs> of course. No, I appreciate that. Um, so Roy, with that, I want to dig a little deeper into the current portfolio. I want to talk about some standout companies. You don't have to pick selections. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, you look excited. So you can talk about some exciting I mean, I companies. Just, look, we, we invest because we love serving founders. Mm -hmm. and wanting to see them succeed. And so talking about individual companies is always more interesting to me than talking about ourselves. Of course. All right, yeah, yeah, no. So let's hear about some of the companies within your portfolio, some of the industries that you're really focused on right now, and uh, any predictions that you have for the future of work. I mean, I could literally start <laughs> a rant for a half an hour uh, and, uh, and then stop, but I won't. I'll just do some brief ones. So I will say Perfect. the most highly valued company in our portfolio is Flexport. Mm -hmm. And we were, if not the first VC, we invested simultaneously with the first VCs to invest in Flexport. I knew the problem myself as a customer of freight forwarders. And so it didn't seem that strange to me to invest in a shipping broker. Like I was like, no, 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 we need this. Because my previous startup, we had like the one dude who was the freight forwarder guy. And it'd be like, okay, when's the product going to arrive? And he'd be like, I'm going to call my buddy in China and figure it out. It's like three days later, you're like, so when's the product going to arrive? It's like, can I just look this up on the internet? Like I want it to be like Uber where I just see it arriving, you know? Anyway, <laughs> um, and Flexport did that. Um, and then seeing Ryan and that team go through their whole arc to present day and they're still going through it has just been amazing. It's just been honestly profound to see the transformations at different phases and the corrections and cases where like, well, the culture is not quite what we want. Let's make it better. Or the product is good, but the sales could be more focused or PR, you know, and just how mm -hmm. they become such a powerhouse there. So that's an example of a really rewarding relationship. I'd say another example of a really rewarding relationship is Replit, where Amjad, Masad, and Haya, um, his co-founder and wife, uh, have 
were people who I had followed for a long time. And it's like, there's just some of these people on the list that like, when they want to start a company, I really want to work with them. Mm -hmm. And so when he came in, I mean, I was, I would have said yes, even if he had said, you can't meet with me because I'd followed him for long enough and known him enough. And it was really rewarding because in that case, a lot of people didn't get it. It was like an online IDE, like there, that's like a small business. Like, why do you want to do that? And just seeing the magic of a founder committed to a vision and this gradual snowball effect of building up all the uh, momentum as it goes has been amazing. I would say that the, I don't really do predictions because I mean, for a VC, that's kind of a weird thing to say, I guess, but I don't really know what's likely to shift in the future. Other than the things that are changing may continue to change and the things that are the same are probably going to continue to stay the same. And so I'd say two themes that I'm focused on. One is tools for labor organizing. So many businesses serve companies and so many businesses serve us as individuals and our identity as consumers. Mm -hmm. But our identity as working people is, for many of us, more important to us than the things we buy and maybe less important to us than our families, um, but certainly very important in our lives. And we've begun to see tools that serve the worker as an individual, not necessarily in the context of their work at the company. I mean, obviously, there's also bottom up, you know, plenty of bottom up enterprise tools. And so I think about things like um, like Slack, where we were modest investors um, that have done that. But I'm talking about things that serve the worker that aren't necessarily about their work for the company. Uh, so we invest in a company called Unit. Uh, that is a company that assists workforces who are trying to unionize. For example, we invested in Open Collective, which hosts mutual aid societies, among other things. And so that's one big theme. The second big theme is what we call a hot swap startup. So now that there are a lot of investors doing future of work, the, the term has become a little more clouded of what it means. A lot of people mean tools for people like us who work. I mean, HR tools or productivity tools, and we include all that too, but we like businesses and Flexport is a good example of this, as is Doma, which is a company we invested in that went five years, public five mm -hmm. years after we invested and we invested right at the very beginning um, at the concept stage, is uh, that companies that enter an industry and just plan to use technology within themselves in some profound way to compete with the incumbents in that industry. So DOMA handles real estate title, which if you ever bought a house is a confusing, backward, manual, and expensive process. Um, Newfront is an insurance broker. You know, we got plenty of these that are what we call hot swaps because in computing, when you have a hot swap of a component, you switch out the component while the system's still running. And similar thing for these companies, they are replacements for what some incumbent does. And they just come in and from the customer's perspective, it's like, yeah, I could use some ancient shipping broker or I could use Flexport. So that's less of an industry and more of a method for starting a company. Compass in real estate is one we're not involved in that has a similar business model. Um, and we're very interested in those hot swaps. Of course, Roy, I can see how fired up and passionate you are about yeah, your I love this stuff. So I mean, I'm everything really grateful to be in what may be the yeah. last job I ever want to have. Of course. I want to go back to um, something that you said um, earlier answer. I just loved how humble it was and how you put it where, you know, we're all still figuring out and like no one can see directly into the future. Um, if I could, obviously, I'd be a millionaire by now. But I mean, I love that you said that you focused yeah, on more the Bitcoin in 2013 instead of going yeah, home yeah, to exactly. my wife 
and saying, honey, how is, what's the most amount of money that if I put it in something and we lost it the next day, you think it would be fine? And she gave me a number and it seemed like a reasonable number and I put it into Bitcoin, but that was stupid. I should have added two more zeros to that number. Yeah, but um, what I love that you said is, uh, you know, we, we can't see directly into the future, but we can focus on what we love today. Um, so I can see clearly that you are investing in companies and founders that you do really love and support and back. So that's really clear um, and goes back to the Bloomberg beta principle of, um, you know, finding uh, founders that will be your customers. Roy, I just want to say thank you so much. I learned a lot during this conversation. Really glad that you were able to join. We have one question from the audience um, from John, uh, an emerging sector that you're particularly bullish on. Uh, what do you think will be the next crypto in terms of rapid growth? I understand we can't see into the future. We spoke yeah, about that, but I mean, maybe crypto will be the next crypto. Um, <laughs> I guess what I would say is I am still, I'm focused on where I see activity happening now and particularly mm -hmm. where I see activity happening that's different from people like me. If you talk, if you go on Twitter, tech Twitter, everybody's going to work remote. Well, even at the peak of the pandemic, only half the people work remote. So let's not get too carried away with this everyone thing. And, you know, I try to spend as much time with people who are different from me, whether that's race, gender, age, professional background, so that I can learn from them about what they're seeing. And one of these trends I see is, especially in the U.S., which is really what I know, a lot of people do not feel like they're getting a fair shake from work. And so that's why tools for labor organizing, which, by the way, labor organizing can go horribly wrong. It could destroy a company sometimes. And so I'm not saying like, oh, all labor organizing is good. Everything should be like that. It has to be done in certain ways that can work, and I'm still trying to learn. So that I would say is the sector that I'm most most focused on is probably a better word than most bullish about. Mm -hmm. And then the hot swap startups I mentioned earlier. But go out and learn from some people different from you. If all you do is follow tech people on Twitter, and you know as much as this podcast is great, if all you do is watch <laughs> podcasts like this one, you can have the same ideas as everybody else, and you better be way smarter than everybody else for that to work. That's fair. I prefer to rely on doing different things, and then I don't have to be that smart. Maybe it'll work out. Yes, diversification of information. That's uh, that's the key word right there. You, you can use that too. <laughs> Roy, I just want to say thank you so much. Really appreciated uh, you joining the show because we met today for the first time. And, yeah, uh, sure. you were great. Fun. You were really great. This is a lot of fun. Um, as I mentioned earlier to our audience, this episode will be live on Thursday morning very early in the a.m. Please share. I mean, I'm going to be sharing this a bunch. Roy shared some amazing advice and information uh, that's relevant to, to be honest, not just the startup ecosystem, not just tech, but so many facets of life. Um, so please make sure to share. I will see you all next Tuesday. Thank you so much. Today's episode of Venturing in VC is brought to you by SeedInvest, the curated equity crowdfunding platform helping entrepreneurs raise the capital they need from seed stage to series D by harnessing the awesome power of the crowd. Learn more about how you can get your business in front of SeedInvest's network of over 600,000 investors looking for opportunities at www.inside.seedinvest.com.